Your eyes on the times, you walk ready to speak up. But with so many problems, you're exhausted trying to keep up. This is the Church Politics Podcast, where you can get political commentary from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be conservative or progressive. We're trying to be Christian in the public square. And I'm black as heaven. I'm made in God's image. Nobody can change my settings. Hey man, cut off my knees and put an end to my search. It's easy to sell your soul when you don't know what it's worth. Which you know good, Ann Camp. You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney, a.k.a. Bishop Cooper's grandson. In the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason-Dixon line, my play cousin, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. Chris, you can see me. Some of those folks that are watching on YouTube can see me. I have a coat on right now. While this weekend, it was like in the 80s in Atlanta, I think. Hmm. It dropped to like, last I looked, it was like 38 degrees. So it's cold here. And it's cold in the office, and they need to turn this heat up. But... One thing I know and what I've heard is probably colder in Chicago. How's it going out there, man? It is colder in Chicago. It is 29 degrees uh, this November morning. So very cold. With snow. With snow. So what I want to point out to the listeners is the show had to go on. Both of us, you know, got through this cold, the cold this morning and said, you know what? We got to make this podcast happen for the people. So we are here. It's even worse for Chris, because as many of you know, who've been listening for a while, Chris has a low tolerance for cold, yet he was born and raised in Chicago. So a pretty tough existence for our friend, Chris. And I wanted I'm to glad to home. hear that you, you made it through. I wanted to stay. I know home you wanted to stay home, but I, I came on out to do the podcast. It's about the people, man. <laughs> it's about the people. Now, Chris, I have a question for you. I know the NBA has started up. You folks know I'm from Denver. The Nuggets are 4-0 last time that I looked. But I can't remember. There's this team that they swept in the playoffs last year. I can't remember that team's name. There's not much to say about them, even like historically, other than they got swept in the playoffs last year. Do you know know who that team is? I can't think of the name. So, you know, I vaguely remember they were – like a yellow jersey, yellow it, yeah, yeah, yellow and purple, like uh, big brother, yep, big sister colors, yeah, and they, and they got swept in the playoffs. I do remember that. That's all that's really notable about them <laughs> that I can recall. So, if guys, if if you guys know who we're talking about, it just slips my mind. I guess I'm getting older. Who knows? If you guys know who we're talking about, please shoot us an an email, shoot us a message on Patreon, something like that, man, so we can figure out exactly who this team is so we can give them their proper credit for getting swept in the playoffs last year. But Chris, we have some other important things to get to today. As always, Chris, you know what it is. I want to give a shout out to all our patrons and supporters for supporting us and what we do and how we do it. This stuff is not free. It takes time. It takes resources. And we thank you for being part of that. If you want to give to church politics, then you can go to patreon.com slash church politics. Not only will you be supporting us, but you'll get premium episodes we do episodes outside of the regular episodes just for our patrons so go check that out if you are watching on youtube and we need more we have a a very small youtube audience while we have a big audience when it comes to uh, itunes and spotify if you watch on youtube make sure that you like and subscribe all right do that for me we would greatly appreciate it but let's get into it chris you know what it is grab your bible get your mind right and prepare to think Not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but to think like a Christian. 
And as usual, Chris, if you don't mind, I want to start with some scripture. And I want to go to Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17. And it reads, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O Lord, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. Chris, as you already know, over any sacrifice, God values a broken and contrite heart. A contrite heart is one that's been humbled. In our contrition, we feel sorrow or even guilt for something that we have done. We're no longer deluded by pride, by a sense of self-sufficiency or by self-righteousness. Contrition can lead us toward an apology, toward accountability, or even better, toward repentance. Because when we're haughty and proud, we're furthest from God. Isaiah said God is with the contrite and the lowly in spirit. He revives the heart of the contrite. And we hear Jesus say the same thing in in Matthew, Sermon on the Mount, basically. Contrition is something we see very little of in American politics, though, Chris. People can get caught red handed. They can hurt thousands of people because of mistake or because of incompetence and never show an ounce of sorrow. Never show an ounce of humility or penance. I think that's wrong. I think that's one of the major problems that we have in politics, but really generally in our public square. Now, surprisingly, Chris, a well-known influencer showed some contrition on the topic of COVID. And this was NYU professor Scott Galloway, who was on Bill Maher's show with the former New York governor, Andrew Cuomo. All right. And Marr was really going hard on the governor and trying to get him to admit that he made some very serious mistakes during COVID, namely that they sent a whole bunch of elderly people from the hospital back to the nursing home without testing them for COVID. COVID spreads like wildfire and a lot of them lost their lives because of it. A major mistake. Now, Cuomo would not admit that he did anything wrong. Uh, at least initially, which may, you know, may be a legal liability issue or, or, or something else. But Scott Galloway, who's not a politician, but Scott Galloway did take a different approach. And I want to listen to what he said on the show about the mistakes that he made. So, so roll that clip so everybody can hear and listen to it. If they call out people and really make them look as stupid and as mean as possible. I was on the board of my kid's school during COVID I wanted a harsher lockdown policy, and in retrospect, I was wrong. The the damage to kids of keeping them out of school longer was greater than the risks. But here's the bottom line. Myself, our, our great people the CDC, I'd like to think the governor, we were all operating with imperfect information, and we were doing our best. So it's all, it's, it's, well. So let's, let, let's learn from it. Let's learn from it. Let's learn from it. Let's hold each other accountable. But let's bring a little bit of grace and forgiveness in the yeah. show that was yeah. Now, Chris, when we listen to that video, a few things stick out to me. A few words actually stick out to me. Number one is I was wrong. 
He also says accountable. We need to be held accountable. He says, hopefully we can learn from it. And then he talks about grace and forgiveness. So I kind of saw this statement in two parts. Number one, we had the contrition. He said he was wrong. Number two, we had a request for grace. And I want to I want to touch on the contrition side of, of this first. I think, Chris, we did a pretty good job when it came to COVID. We didn't get everything right, but I think we we weren't partisan or ideological about it. We were just trying to take the information that we had and and, and kind of to the best that we could figure out what the next step should be and what, you know, what America's be should be thinking and should be doing. But we both know that COVID became a culture war battle very quickly. And it became one that at certain times, I don't think either side was primarily following the science or really conducting themselves with a whole lot of sobriety and humility. At some points, it was so polarized and contentious that people seemed more interested in proving how wrong and stupid the other side was than they were about finding the right solutions. And that was really unfortunate. You know, certain people would not agree with anything Trump said, whether it was right or wrong. Certain people would not agree with anything Fauci said, whether it was right or wrong. It was it was out of control. I mean. At a time. People were called racist for saying that covid came from the Wuhan lab. Which is most we now know is most likely the case. People also had their social media accounts taken away and suspended for those same claims, which were likely right. Then you had in some other spaces where wearing masks made you an irredeemable progressive. It it was just it was out of control and people were basing their decisions on their ideology. And that was just a bad idea. But maybe even bigger than that was there were some very major policy mistakes that we saw, one of those being school shutdowns. We may never recover as a country from those shutdowns. And the fact of the matter is many low income kids, I hope I'm wrong, may never recover from those shutdowns and the the harm that it caused just their educational development, trying to do that over Zoom and everything else. And it just wasn't working. But very few proponents of that policy have apologized or displayed any kind of contrition. Now, I do believe that most leaders were doing the best that they could with limited information. And we've said over and over that there's grace for that. And and Galloway, Professor Galloway mentioned that as well. That doesn't change the fact that they were terribly wrong. And that needs to be admitted for we so we can go on and try to fix some of the issues that came from those mistakes. I don't have any expectation that most folks who made those decisions are going to show contrition about it. But I think that's part of the reason that we have such little social capital in our politics and very little trust in our country, because even when people are dead wrong and everybody knows it, they don't admit it, which means people don't accept what they have to say afterwards. I appreciate Galloway saying, look, I was on my child's school board. I wanted harsher lockdowns and I was wrong. I got it wrong. Please show a little grace and let's learn from this. But Chris, what what do you take from Professor Galloway's admission and just this whole idea of folks not being able to show contrition in what I think is the culture war that has affected our social political space in the way that it has? Yeah, I mean, it was certainly nice to see and to hear that level of contrition, but that is not the disposition of the majority of the actors who were making decisions during COVID. 
The majority of the public health establishment does not take that position or demonstrate that kind of contrition. Certainly, as you reference, the education policymaking set does not display that kind of contrition. And I think that is really unfortunate because that lack of contrition, I think, is one of the big things that gets in the way of looking for forward moving solutions. So especially in education, where you had the lockdowns, lots of kids, the the research is out now that the learning loss was devastating. To even try to recover some of it is going to take such a devotion of resources, creativity, and time. And these are conversations that you can't have if you have some of the same folks uh, in charge of making decisions, and they're unwilling to say, wow, we got this really, really wrong during COVID, and it hurt kids in a major way. If you can't say that, then it's hard to get into those solution-oriented conversations. And so it's it's really unfortunate that that is the disposition of most of the politicians, most of the policymakers, and most of everybody who is making decisions during COVID, which, as we heard in the clip, I think there is room for grace here because it is true that folks were making decisions in real time with faulty information that was changing a lot. It was a, a terribly difficult environment. I know on a very, very small scale, being the pastor of a church, how it was just trying to figure out when do we open back up? What are the rules when we meet? Are there masks, no masks, social distancing, multiple services, all these types of things. It was a, it was a fraught decision-making environment. But that inability to step forward and say, we got it wrong, stands in the way of a lot of progress. I'll also point out one thing that I did think was refreshing in the video is that Governor Cuomo prior to Galloway's comments, was hardline no contrition. Didn't do anything wrong. You know, anything that did happen was somebody else's fault or unavoidable consequence. After Galloway's comment, there was a a tone shift in the conversation. You still never got a kind of full-throated apology from Governor Cuomo, but there was a definite shift in the tone where even he was able to explore in a greater way the possibility that some things could have gone differently during that time period. And that just goes to show that all it takes is a few courageous individuals to step up and demonstrate that kind of contrition to shift the conversation. Yeah, I, I think I think you you can change the tone, right? And Christians should be seeking to change the tone. One of the things we talk about on the AND campaign is how do we change the incentive structure for our leaders so that they would be more honest, so that they could make better decisions and not be so afraid of accountability? Christians should care about creating an incentive structure that would allow that to happen. One of the reasons I think that it doesn't happen is because when somebody does try to be honest, not only does the other side attack them just in a crazy way and show no forgiveness whatsoever. And I want to say we're not pushing away from accountability because even Galloway mentioned accountability, but grace can come with accountability, right? Like there's a grace, there can be a grace attached to that sometimes too. What ends up happening is the base attacks you, the other side attacks you. And what I think Christians and and other folks need to do who are, you know, who want to see our sociopolitical space get better and healthier is be a counterweight to that incentivize and reward people for admitting when they got something wrong and trying to fix it. 
Otherwise, we get this situation where you never deal with the issues because you never admit they actually happened. And again, it hurts the trust in the social capital in our society because nobody believes anything you say if you clearly did something wrong and will not admit it. Now, I'm no fool. I'm not being naive here, Chris. We're not going to have a, a, a political space where every politician is telling the truth all the time. Right. But it, it could be helpful to say, man, we did get this wrong. Here's where we went wrong. Here's how I'm trying to fix it. And people say, well, I appreciate that. Let's fix it. Let's get that done. I think Christians can help with, you know, with partners to create a different incentive structure that allows for that type of contrition. Yeah. And I think Christians have a lot that we can do because I, I do think Christians tend to be involved disproportionately to other communities. First off, the vast majority of people in America are not involved in civics and politics in any way. Many Christians are involved and you have Christians involved on both sides of the aisle. I think that we tend though to speak clearly only when our tribe is speaking. And even those of us who are not inclined to join in on the foolishness that the people on our side of the aisle may get involved with, we only speak when our folks are doing right. And I think that's fine. If your tribe is doing the right thing, join in on that and speak clearly. But then when our tribe is doing something that is not so great, we tend to be quiet. Even if we don't join that chorus, we just be quiet. And we underestimate the impact that we could have by saying the right thing and saying it out loud. We see it in this clip. It only takes a few people to shift the tone. And those of us who have worked directly with elected officials, Justin, you know this well, will tell you that it doesn't take an overwhelming number of people to start to impact how an elected official is thinking about something. A handful of emails, letters, phone calls, visits to a district office will change how an individual elected official is dealing with the situation. So if you're a pastor and you see a local elected official, even on a small thing, do something like this, pick up the phone or type out a short little email to say, hey, saw what you did, really applaud you. I'm here for you. That makes a massive impact on how elected officials respond to the public because that trust goes both ways. We we don't have a lot of trust in our elected officials because they don't do stuff like this. They don't do stuff like this because they don't have a lot of trust that they're not going to get eaten alive if they do. So we can change that. And I just encourage us not to ever underestimate our ability to have an impact on the, the conversation. I couldn't agree more with you on that. And I think that's a good way to end this segment. We will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the AND campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the AND campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. 
the Ant Campaign's guide to faithful civic engagement that we publish with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. Uh, Chris, uh, uh, a few weeks back, maybe a month ago or so, we we talked about the United Auto Workers strike and how they were going about that. We thought that it was going to be effective just based on their their strategy and some of the uh, tactics they were using. And it looks like we were right. According to Reuters, the United Auto Workers struck deals with Ford Motor, Stellantis, and General Motors separ- uh, separately. So these were separate deals ending the union's unprecedented six-week campaign of coordinated strikes that won record pay increases for workers at the Detroit Three automakers. These are significant victories for auto workers after years, and this is what Reuters is saying, after years of stagnant wages and painful concessions following the 2008 financial crisis. All right. Here's what UAW President Sean Fain had to say about the win. We wholeheartedly believe our strike squeezed every last dime out of General Motors. They underestimated us and they underestimated you, you being the actual actual uh, union workers. So he's shoving it in their face a little bit. He's boasting a little bit saying, yeah, we, we got you. And you had to you had to meet us where we wanted you to be. Interesting response. Now, pursuant to the agreement, pay for veteran workers will rise 33 percent. That's significant. And the automakers will give twenty five hundred and twenty five hundred and five payments to retirees through twenty twenty eight. These are retirees. That's another big deal. Now, on the other side, others would say the automakers and some analysts would would say and have said that the deals will significantly raise their costs and make it harder for them to compete with electric vehicle leader Tesla and non-union foreign brands such as Toyota Motor. Chris, my question for you is, how do you analyze this this as a whole, right? So number one, we know that wages were down. We know that wages needed to come up. For some reason in our economy, when everything goes up, wages just does not go along with that in many cases. So we know the workers need to be paid more, but now we have higher prices for making the cars, which may make it harder for them to compete. How, how should we look at this on the whole? Yeah. So I think one, the first thing that I have to say is just that the stand-up strike was a brilliant piece of organizing on the part of the UAW. It was fresh and creative. It was well executed. It was powerful. And it was able to win Things in the in these contracts, you know, it has been finalized. It hasn't been voted by the workers. But what is being reported out are things that, if you would have told me a year ago that the UAW was going to win from the big three automakers in a strike, 
I would have laughed if you said that you were going to see these types of wage increases compounded with COLA reestablishment, eliminating tiers, making payments to existing retirees. It's, it's a huge contract. And so hats off to the organizing prowess at the UAW. As you move forward, there's got to be participation from the broader ecosystem to make sure that the auto companies don't take this bill to the consumer, right? That probably is going to be the inclination, but all of the data suggests with the record-breaking profits, the stock buybacks, the executive perks and payouts, the, the companies can assume the cost of this without passing it on to the consumer. That is not the inclination though. And so you need the union to stay on top of these things because if you're a union worker, you just made a big win. Uh, You got the wind at your back. The public is on your side. Uh, If car prices start to uh, skyrocket, then you may lose some public support. So the union's got to make sure that you keep your eye on that. Uh, We have a president of the United States who has proclaimed himself the most pro-labor president in the history of the United States. One of the most pro-labor things that he can do right now is to make sure that he uses every regulatory resource within his reach to make sure that these auto companies do not take this bill directly to the consumer. This has the impact across the industry of improving life for workers, not just union workers at UAW plants, but workers across the industry, you already saw this morning, Toyota has announced that they are going to increase wages for their workers at their plants, and they are going to look at eliminating some of the tiered systems so that temps and permanent employees have a little bit more equity between the temps and the uh, the permanent employees. Uh, so this is having a positive impact. It can and should have a positive impact all throughout the industry. The way that we have to do that, though, is to keep our eye on the ball and make sure that what has happened with the existing inflation doesn't happen in the auto industry, where we see most of the inflation, well, not most, we see a lot of the inflation that we're dealing with currently comes from straight corporate price gouging and willfully and unnecessarily raising prices. We can't have the auto companies take this bill straight to the consumer, but that's going to take participation from a lot of different actors to make sure that we get that done. So what you're saying is, although prices will likely rise for the production of the cars, that you believe the automakers can stay healthy and not and not charge more for the cars. Absolutely. The all of the the numbers suggest this already that you know it's it's already only about 15% of what you pay for your car is going to laborers, right? So most of what you're paying for your car already is not going to the worker. So this is these are companies that were bailed out during the Obama administration. They are flush now. They can do this without bringing it back to the consumer, but that is not the impulse of 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 the corporate system. And again, I'm not an anti-capitalist per se, uh, but I do think that capitalism capitalism has to exist in a broader ecosystem that keeps those worst impulses of capitalism in check. You know, that's good. I think both of us are, are are pretty much in the same boat there. Capitalism does have to be there has to be a check. Right. It can't just be 
laissez-faire capitalism, do you know, do whatever you want to do, charge whatever you want to charge and, and no and be no check there. One thing we might want to do in the near future is just bring somebody on to talk about business ethics. Like what is business ethics in in regard to the consumer look like in a in a capitalistic capitalistic system? Like what obligations does, you know, the 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 corporation have to the consumer, to the workers and all that. That may be a conversation that we need to have have soon. Yeah, I think that would be important. I, I do remind people that, you know, in September, if you're looking at CNBC, they were saying that the strike was going to make car prices go through the roof and that the companies were going to have to shut down if, if they went on strike even. Um, hmm. And that didn't happen. So it didn't happen. Imagine that. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's worth talking about, you know, American innovation. All those things are good. I think that needs to be coupled with a conversation about what business ethics look like in a capitalistic system, because I think some, you know, there's this big trend of everybody hating everything about capitalism. I think that's a little bit overblown, but there does need to be a conversation about ethics, because I, I think you have seen where the ethics fail and the consumer and the workers are really just out there. How do you I mean, any system has its downside. The downside of capitalism is probably greed, right? It can let greed run amok. How do you have the ethics and create the structures to not allow that to happen while still having the innovation that comes with it? I think that's a very worthy conversation. Something else we need to think about, though, is as consumers, we have a say in this too, though, Chris. Yeah. So if we know that there are certain companies that don't pay their workers well or don't treat their workers right, Maybe we think about that when we decide who to buy a car from. Now, we know cars are very expensive. You know, a lot of people are just buying whatever they can afford. But in that many of these companies have different levels of, you know, different cars from different in different ranges. Maybe we buy a car from a company in in a range that that fits us. But but a company that we know treats their workers well. We are not completely hopeless when it comes to some of these conversations. We can, again, incentivize good business ethics, if we get the information out to people and if we're willing to use our dollars wisely, which is something that we even saw in the civil rights movement, you know, yeah. uh, with with breadbasket and, uh, and all that. So just something to think about. Yeah, for sure. And we definitely in, in this day and age have to look at as believers how we participate in the economy, because we are also actors. We are not helpless completely in the system and sometimes the convenience of things makes us participate in, in not the best ways i mean i i think about what was it, it 2005 or something like that but there's a documentary it's focused on walmart but it's, it's called the the high cost of low prices mm-hmm. and you know i don't agree with everything in that documentary but that that thought has stuck with me. And I think it's something that needs to ring around in our minds a little bit more as consumers and participants from that standpoint uh, in this economy. That's real. We will be right back on the church politics podcast. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney and the Right Reverend Christopher Butler. Qu- quick question for you, Chris, because I know we come from two uh, different denominations, I should say. 
Were you able? Did you celebrate Halloween as a kid? As a kid, we were more Hallelujah Night kind of a vibe. Holy Ween, um, Holy Ween, and all, all those types of okay. things. Uh, so, you know, as as an adult, I don't know. I enjoy. Let me say this because I don't like. I don't like decorate and do all that stuff. But I enjoy interacting with folks in the neighborhood when kids come around to trick or treat. Okay. So I, I do participate. So as a kid, you did not either. trick or treat. No, okay. you did like not. Night you night did not night. dress up, or did you or, dress up like a Bible character? Only Bible character. Okay, okay. <laughs> so I was able to celebrate Halloween to some extent. My mom never really liked it, mm-hmm. but I could dress up as long as I, I could never be like a monster or like a vampire, or any anything that could be considered evil. Yeah. And I'm still like that with my kids. Like they can be superheroes, all that. We're not gonna be Frankenstein and witches and yeah. all that. You know. All that stuff. So that's where I was at. Now, let me ask you this. I talked about zombies in my sermon on Sunday. Okay. All right. I I, I got I folded. I got it in. We're still a Pentecostal church, very focused on holiness, but I was able to shoehorn uh, a zombie. I like that. I might have to go back and, and catch that one. Let, let me ask you this. Were you allowed to watch scary movies or were scary movies within themselves, like watching them like a sin? Like, was that? How far did y'all get? We managed to watch them. I don't think that was something that was ever promoted. We managed. By my parents. In disobedience, but, uh, we managed to watch the film. <laughs> we got some. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, let me tell you this story because I found this next story to be quite interesting. For somebody who we celebrated it, my mom wasn't really into it, and we got plenty of warnings about the evil kind of connected to it, which could be connected to it. But want to th- want to hear what you have to say about this. So in New Jersey... Dr. Ronald G. Taylor, who is the superintendent of the South Orange Maplewood School District, sent a letter home uh, with kids informing them, uh, informing their parents that Halloween would not be celebrate celebrated in any of the schools this year. So that meant no parades, no costumes, no candy, no trick or treat. All right. Now, according to the New York Post, The reason for wiping out this fun holiday uh, and very secular holiday was diversity, equity and inclusion. Apparently, the higher ups in the school district uh, were trying not to ostracize kids who don't celebrate Halloween like yourself uh, because of religious reasons or those who simply can't afford elaborate costumes. All right. So according to them, Uh, This was to foster diversity, equity and inclusion in a meaningful way. And I understand those considerations. Right. I I even went to school. You know, I went to school with some folks who were Jehovah's Witness, so they couldn't celebrate any holidays. Mm -hmm. I just think it's going too far. Right. Like, I think we should be considerate. uh, And let's be honest, like this isn't a decision that, you know, truly affects the school in any you know significant way as far as how the kids learn and all that. But I do think it's an example of where a minor example, maybe even a not a big deal example, but I, I do think it's an example of where diversity, equity and, and inclusion can go wrong. Right. I don't think you need to take the celebration from everybody, even if some people can't afford it. I mean, look, we used to just have to get creative. You know, since sometimes you just be creative or as kids, and this happens, and this is what we can't stop that I think people try to re- prevent. As kids, guess what? Sometimes we just get left out. And guess what? If handled properly, we build character from it, right? 
So every time a kid might not be included in something doesn't mean it's the end of their life or it's going to be some huge trauma they have. Kids actually can get through stuff like that. And actually, it builds character. What are your thoughts on this, though, though, Chris? Yeah, so a, a couple of things. One, you sort of point to this. I, I do think that while this is this is a little bit fun and maybe even you know one step away from trivial, trivial. but That's I think I that these these environments, like the trivial questions, are healthy spaces for us to deal with these types of questions. Because sometimes when the when the stakes are super duper high, it's more difficult to be open minded about it. Right. But here is an example that we do see play out in very high stakes situations where efforts toward inclusion do not take into account who and what your inclusion efforts are excluding. Mm-hmm. So at some point, you can go so much into the efforts toward inclusion that basically everything that makes anybody unique in any way is excluded. Mm. And that's something you have to be very careful of. The second thing that I see here is the shallow nature oftentimes of those efforts toward inclusion. So we're just going to cancel Halloween celebrations because some kids in our district are poor and can't afford to buy a Halloween costume. We're not going to do very much to alleviate their poverty, make our overall economic system more just and equitable so that they maybe can afford to do whatever things they might want to do. We're just going to make sure that we don't have to look at it, right? I, I, don't, I don't like to see that. So this kid is poor every day. They, it's not just Halloween costume that they can't buy. They can't afford to buy what the other kid has for lunch. They can't afford to buy the clothes the other kid has. This is an ongoing reality that a kid in poverty is dealing with every day. I'd much rather see a New Jersey school district pressuring their members of Congress to reinstate a child tax credit than canceling Halloween. So it just seems like a misguided solution to me in some ways. You know, nobody's going to like die from this. I also think what you said, Justin, is really important. As growing up, being one of those kids, now we probably weren't going to buy Halloween costumes, but we grew up definitely not as much money as most of the kids that I was going to school with. And you learn character by having to figure out what to do in those situations where somebody else's family can just put the money in and it'll go easy. You have to be creative, resourceful. And and I think a lot of the sort of intangible skills are skills that I learned in my childhood. And if you're going to grow up in that kind of a challenge situation, goodness mercy, at least give me the opportunity to develop some skills that might advantage me in some way, you know, later on in life. I think all this is well intended. It seems well intended. You know, I'm not in the middle of it. It seems well intended, but it goes. I think it goes in the wrong direction in in thinking that you can just protect people from all types of exclusion. Like yeah. you can't. And, and even if you never want kids to ever feel bad, you can't necessarily prevent that. Right. Yeah. And so I think this is, is somewhat a trivial example, but I think what they're doing is in vain because those kids, you know, just just doesn't accomplish what you think it accomplishes. You can't keep everybody from 
always, you know, always feeling completely included. They got to go home. They got to see other things. And maybe you just help people. Maybe you provide some costumes. Right. Or maybe you give them pointers on, you know, what they can do. But it's just a, a kind of trivial example of where that thinking can kind of go wrong. But I think on bigger examples, it can even go further wrong and do more damage than than this particular example. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think it's just, it's a good place. And again, I like that it's this Halloween New Jersey thing, but it sometimes our efforts for inclusion, which I think inclusion is good, by the way, let me say that for the record. Anybody can look at the larger body of my work and you will know that I think that inclusion is good and important, but you also have to remember that I think every organization is a sort of microculture. That is the nature of organizations and institutions. And the way microcultures form is that there are norms and rules and stuff. You know, we talked about at the top of this conversation. If you grew up in a Pentecostal holiness church, you probably weren't doing Halloween because that's that's the microculture like that's what we do here and some of that is good and important if if you make every space always 100% the same in the name of inclusion i think you flatten all of life in a way that's not good or healthy yeah and you don't accomplish what you think you're accomplishing either and so that 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 uh i agree with well we appreciate it as always man i appreciate uh being on here with you i thought i hope y'all enjoyed it hope you learned something i w- wish i could say i hope it warms up in both atlanta or chicago we know one place is not going to warm up anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but nah, man uh as always appreciate it appreciate everybody who was listening you know what it is and camp there's cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear there's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world politic with the boldness and compassion of jesus christ until next time and camp well, how about you?